Hi, this is Fantastic Mini, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, the companions searched through the first two rooms of the cavern complex in the Brentwood. They learned quickly that it had once been a home to some dozen or so people, but now it is abandoned. Why they left is a mystery, and remains a mystery, even as the companions discover more clues. One of these clues is a finely made loot. Next, in a dramatis personae, we learn what Yellowfly and his gang cannot, that these caverns were once the hideout of the fugitive, Matchy Swin, and his band, which included his sweetheart, Eridine. We hear a song echoing out of the past before returning to the present. When Jace finds and lights an old lantern, a pair of horrors lurking directly over the companions' heads are revealed. Two Rakudesas, giant arachnids, are descending from the ceiling to attack. The combat that ensues is a desperate one. The party cannot effectively go forward, nor can they return the way they came. With the option of retreating taken away, they must stand and fight the terrifying creatures. Cole loses his life in the struggle, and Shawnee comes close too. It's a bittersweet victory when Catsbane, of all people, strikes the killing blow and ends the encounter. Chapter 32, Part 1, Day 108, Afternoon. Party status, Yellowfly, 14 of 26 hit points. Shawnee, 7 of 16. Catsbane, 8 of 8. Spells available. There are no spells available. Shastun, have mercy. He isn't breathing. Shawnee was speaking through tears, bent over the still figure of Cole. The others looked at their feet. Of course he wasn't breathing. The fighter had almost been torn in two. Now he laid in a pool of blood an inch deep, the black and green ichor and slime from the dead creatures mingled with the pure red of Cole's blood and swirled in arabesque patterns on the cavern floor. He'd be alive if it weren't for that skeg at the windy, said Yellowfly through gritted teeth. Shawnee had told them the night before which of the two had sold their names to the Weeping Eye. We'll have our revenge on him. I promise you that. Yellowfly wiped his blade on one of the dead monster's hulking forms and then shoved it into a scabbard. I'm going to make them suffer for this. Shawnee stood up. She was holding the chain with Tam's orphan key on it that Cole had been wearing since the cleric's death. She wiped her eyes with her free hand. At least he's with Tam again. 
and Tamil had been missing him. Shane, are you alright? The young rogue was covered in blood of her own from a pair of nasty bite marks on her abdomen. Catsbane offered her the elixir of healing, but she waved it away. I'll be fine. If you're certain, he said, replacing the vial in his pouch. She did not look fine. Her armor was shredded in places, and she was unsteady on her feet. Still, he was not going to force the issue. Who's Tam? It was Jace. He didn't know Cole well enough to feel the loss deeply, but his expression and voice showed compassion. Our good friend, Shane began. Cole's best friend. He's dead too. Jace nodded dumbly. In their profession, death was common. Still, he knew how badly it hurt. How did he? Jace asked without saying the word. He just died, replied Shane. She didn't want to talk about it. Instead, she held up the key and changed the subject. Addressing no one in particular, she asked, Did Tam ever tell you the first revelation of Shatun? The First Revelation of Shartoon In his adult life, Shartoon became known as a wise man and a truth-sayer. He traveled the lands and spoke with kings and queens and poets alike. He became well known for his philosophies concerning the limits of liberty. We are all prisoners, he would tell them, and every one of us lives our entire life in bondage. Our bodies are bound to the earth beneath our feet. Even birds may not fly beyond the sky to touch the stars. On a deeper level, our minds are imprisoned in our skulls and must observe the world through the clouded and imperfect windows of our eyes. If you can accept this fact, then you will know peace. When Chartoon was an old, frail man, bedridden and weak, he looked back on his life with satisfaction and embraced his eventual passing without fear. His great-grandson, Atruman, would tend on him during the days, bringing him the things that he needed, like water and clean sheets and the warmth of his company. One day, after Atruman attended to his needs, Chartoon had smiled upon the boy and said, Atruman, I'm proud of you. You are a good soul, and I know you will grow up to become a true man of wisdom and kindness. Atruman had looked upon his great-grandfather with eyes that seemed to belong to someone much older and asked, Great-grandfather, I know what kindness is, but what does it mean to be wise? It means that you can see things as they really are, instead of how you wish them to be, my good boy, replied Chartoon. But looking at your face, I can see you are not satisfied with that answer. What is it that troubles you? Forgive me, great-grandfather, but I think perhaps I am not very wise. I cannot always tell good from evil. Sometimes it seems they're both just ideas, made up by people. Are they real or invented? Or are they something in between? A thing is real or it is not, Atraman. There is no in-between. And as for good and evil, I think we can choose, as human beings, whether or not they exist. Consider, there can be no up without down, no inside without outside, no light without dark, and no good without evil. If we decide there is the one, the other must be as well. Does that help? I think so. Thank you, great-grandfather. Atruman had then taken his leave, and Chartoon had remained in bed, smiling to himself and thinking on the boy's question. Slowly, his smile faded as new understanding dawned on him. No up without down. No light without dark, and no bondage without freedom. 
As soon as the revelation came, he became the owner of both realities, and the next time Atruman came to look upon his great-grandfather, the bed was empty. Chapter 32 Part 2 Day 108 Late Afternoon Party Status Yellowfly 14 out of 26 hit points Shawnee 7 out of 16 Catsbane 8 out of 8 Spells Available There are no spells available In winter, the ground was hard, and, even with the proper tools, a burial would have been almost impossible. In the end, they settled for bringing Cole's body into the first cavern where their campfire still burned. They laid him in a position of dignity and repose, and Yellowfly said a few words over the body. I might not know how to give last rites, but I know how to say goodbye to a friend. Cole, you were a true member of the church, and the man we all wanted to fight alongside. I've never met a man as good and honest as you. Goodbye, Cole. I miss you, said Shawnee, tying the cord with the orphaned key around her neck. She gave it a kiss before tucking it into her shirt. Goodbye, my friend, said Catsbane, holding back tears. Jace was not in the cavern with them. He had wanted to give the trio some time on their own to pay their respects, and so while they conducted their informal funeral, he had taken a brand out of the campfire and returned to the Raguadessa's chamber. They had all commented that the passage leading deeper into the caverns was much too small for the monsters to fit through, and so Jace did not fear a further attack. Perhaps it was foolhardy for him to adventure further in on his own, but if he hadn't, he wouldn't have discovered the tiny space. It couldn't really be called a room, more like a bulb-shaped cavity at the end of a dozen feet of tight winding corridor. There were signs of human activity in this spot as well. Some old clothes, a pair of rusted swords, and a rotting leather quiver hanging from a root. It was full of mostly warped and useless arrows. Jace managed to find three that looked straight enough to fly more or less true, and took them. He was about to turn back when something caught his eye, a loose stone the length of his forearm. Behind it, Jace found a package, something wrapped in several layers of cloth, bound in twine, and tied with a simple knot. He lifted it free. It had a little weight to it. He looked at it as if wondering if he should open it then, or wait. He would have to make up his mind quickly, as his improvised torch would not last much longer. A few minutes later, he returned to the first chamber with the package, unopened, in his left hand. He tossed his extinguished torch into the campfire. What's that? asked Shawnee. She didn't miss a thing. I don't know. I haven't opened it yet, said Jace. I found it hidden behind some rocks, beyond the other cavern. He began to work on the complicated knot in the twine that bound the package. Yellowfly stopped him. Open it later, he said, already making his way out of the cave. We're leaving. Hi, I'm Emily. And I've lived my whole life being absolutely... Average. We're talking cat-owning, small apartment in the city, normal human being. That is until recently. Now I'm being told that not only am I not normal, I'm not even human. I'm something called an anomaly. Chaos incarnate. And I might be the cause of the end of humanity. 
Follow along as I discover who my friends are, who is trying to manipulate me, and who is trying to kill me before I ravage this world. Between the Lines I've said many times that listeners of Season 2 do not need to know anything about Season 1 to follow the story, and that is completely true. I've also mentioned before that the world is a persistent one, and that the current story follows the first, 20 years after its conclusion. When the idea for the church to bait the weeping eye into attacking their rigged wagons came to me, even before I knew the plan would fail and the party would be betrayed, (laughs) I still remember that horrible dollar store die roll. Anyway, even before that, I pictured the ambush happening near a point of interest from Season 1. I was thinking of a ruined temple of Sadal that had been included on the map in Season 1. I thought, wouldn't it be kind of cool to have that site reappear in the story? A few people might remember it and they'd probably get a kick out of seeing it again. My first idea was to have Suro the Mad and his men hiding at the ruin, but my first ideas are seldom my best ideas. I realized that the distance from the road and the winter snow would make it a less than ideal base for the winks. The woods by the roadside would make much better sense. These woods I knew were called the Brentwood. Other than the name, the only thing I knew about the Brentwood was that it figured into the backstory of one of the PCs from Season 1. The rogue, Eredine, had once lived there with her lover, an infamous confidence man and cutthroat named Machi Swin. He had a band of thieves that lived in a certain cave complex there. Although it'll remain a mystery to the PCs, I know what happened to Swin's band of thieves 20 years ago, and perhaps you might be curious. Their hideout was attacked by a band of goblins and direwolves two decades before Yellowfly and his gang discovered it. When the animals caught the scent of humans and led them to the cave complex, they and their goblin raiders stormed in, taking Swin and his band completely off guard. Not just off guard, but unarmored and pretty drunk too. The bandits had been celebrating in the aftermath of a successful robbery at the time. The goblins and direwolves had a field day. It was a massacre. Most of Swin's people were killed in their home. A few managed to escape the cave, but were cut down by a small group of goblins guarding against a retreat. Some of these goblins were killed in the struggle, but not many, and their bones are still outside the cave entrance. Well, the bandits fell under their arrows and clubs and swords. Only a handful survived. Swin himself got away. He was pursued, but his eventual fate remains a mystery. His lover, Eredine, got away too. Like Swin, she was pursued, but unlike him, the rest of her story is known. She was caught. Eredine's story is the stuff of season one, so I won't discuss it any further here, except to mention one thing. At a certain point in her life, she thought back to her cave hideout. She was far, far away from the Brentwood by then, and practically a different person but she remembered it. Eredine recalled that Swin had hidden something valuable behind a panel in one of the deeper parts of the cave, and she wished that she could retrieve it. She never did, but now Jace has found it. Chapter 32, Part 3, Day 108, Late Afternoon. Carrick lifted the ornate thing from the cool stone interior of the sarcophagus. How majestic and how heavy it was. He rotated it slowly in his hands, with his mind filling with awe. 
of all of the wonders he had seen in his life, and there had been so many of them, this topped them all. The crown of the Camors. It had graced the brows of kings. It was nothing less than a thing of legend. Many believed it was the crown found by Bertram and passed down to his son, Saega. But Carrick knew from Daenor's writing that it was not. The first crown, though valuable, had been a false crown. This was the true crown, discovered centuries ago. Daenor's writings were often erratic and fevered, self-contradicting and strange. It was as though he struggled for mastery over his own thoughts, but certain things were written with lucidity and even urgency. This was the true crown. Carrick could feel it. He wondered why it would be here, sealed away. Not that he wished it would have been destroyed, or worse, worn by their current fool of a monarch. Culfrey did not deserve to even look upon an artifact such as this. How it glowed in the dim. Every winking sapphire, each sparkling diamond, sang with splendor, refracting the soft green glow from the tip of his staff. Slowly, reverently, Carrick lifted the crown into the air. He held his breath, dismissing the briefest moment of doubt, before placing it upon his own head. The Night Mother, she who could trace her bloodlines all the way back to Aelun the Unwanted, smiled a toothless smile. The time had finally come. Sivan, novice of the Church of the Sacred Flame, murderer and living blasphemy, laughed aloud with a voice like a little bell. <laughs> Her master had arrived. Laris, he of the weeping eye, woke from a strange slumber and stood up, his disused joints and bones cracking in protest. He left the dark chamber behind, for his time among the mortals was at an end. I think we've reached a turning point in the story. When Carrick put that crown on his head, something happened. I'm not entirely sure what it means yet, but I know it got the attention of various forces of evil nearby. For now, let's leave that alone and turn our attention back to the PCs. They are leaving the cave system and are heading to the town of Brannon, not back to Silmoral. We'll see why that is when we return to the narrative. Before they can go anywhere, they first need to leave the Brentwood unmolested, and that is not a given. The Brentwood is unsafe, even by day. I'm going to make one wandering encounter check before I say they're clear of it. Here goes. A 1 on a d6 is what I don't want to see. Rolling. A 6. Good. That takes care of that. Now, before we get back to the story, I have one more roll to make. When Jace was in the little nook and found the package, as you might have guessed, he did open it and look inside before tying it back up again. He is a thief, after all. How far his allegiance toward the others extends isn't really known. Not yet. There are things of value in that package he might well have been tempted to take for himself. Hmm. I'm not exactly sure which mechanic to use here. A reaction roll would work, adjusted by... Well, it would probably be adjusted by the party's overall charisma score, I suppose, as well as by circumstance. Looking through my character sheets, I see that the PCs have extremely unexceptional charisma scores. Catsbane has the highest of the bunch, with a 10 in the stat, so charisma won't figure into things after all. 
Circumstance, then, is the only factor. Is Jace afraid of being caught? A little bit, but not especially. Does he feel a sense of obligation to the others? Yes, I think he would. They used a valuable magical item to heal him. That's worth something. How about a plus two on the roll? Okay, I'm ready to go. 2d6, higher is better, plus two bonus. Here's the roll. Chapter 32, Part 4, Day 108, Early Evening. Party Status The party status is unchanged. Fly? What? The fighter's black mood was evident by his tone in the single word. Only not. They had broken free of the tree line and rejoined the road. The only evidence of yesterday's battle was the burnt frame of the lead wagon that was located a half mile south of the site of their battle. The horses were gone. Someone must have come this way and taken them, along with the second wagon bed. As for the bodies of the slain weeping eye brigands back at the site of the ambush itself, they were mostly buried under new fallen snow. Here and there, one could see a spear shaft or a boot sticking through the surface. We aren't going back to Silmoral yet, grumbled Dalefly, much as I would like to. We'll get our revenge, and be sure of that. But justice for Cole will have to wait. When those two we chased into the woods don't come home, the Winks will know we're alive, and they'll be waiting. Now we have to give them some time to relax their guard. But, Shonay, look at yourself. Fly indicated her leather jerkin, which was torn and stained with blood. She moved stiffly, and her wounds had not healed. You are in no condition to pick a fight. I wasn't exactly planning on a fight mumbled the thief under her breath. They walked another quarter mile, and the grim scene was well behind them before Yellowfly spoke again. Perhaps we should take a short rest. Until now, he had set a demanding pace. Although the distance to Brannon was not far at all, and the sun was beginning to set, they were all exhausted. A ten-minute break would be welcome, even if it meant walking the last mile in the dark. Jace, why don't you show us what you found at the cave? The quartet squatted down on the snow-blanketed road, facing each other, while Jace fumbled at the tightly knotted twine that bound his package. It took some time, but using his teeth to aid the process, he got the knot undone and rolled open the bundle of cloth on the ground between them. Inside was a little bag of black velvet, quite heavy with coin, one could tell without needing to open it. There was also a slim tube fashioned of bone, with lightly carved markings along the side. Jace emptied the contents of the bag into his palm, and they were greeted by the flash and jingle of gold. He began counting coins while Catsbane picked up the bone tube. You know what that is, Catsbane? asked Yellowfly. One of these markings is familiar to me, actually. There's a sorceress in the city named Elorraine. She used to be quite well known, I understand, but at least in my lifetime she's been a recluse. Some say she's a widow, I can't say for certain. She keeps to herself even more than most magic users do. Anyway, this marking is her sigil. There's also a rune here. That's a warning to anyone who might try to open it. It opens, asked Shane. The question made sense. The ends were solid, and there was no visible way to open the tube. Nor was there a seam indicating that it could be opened. These little devices really are something, are they not? Yes, it does indeed open, though... Even if you look very closely, you still won't be able to see where... Does it open here? Shawnee pointed to a nearly invisible line running around the tube a third of the way down. Uh, yes. My goodness, you have keen eyesight, Shawnee. 
A simple twist and pull should open it. What do you think is inside? Commonly, one would put a magical scroll in a tube like this. Possibly a wand. <laughs> Perhaps there's nothing inside. I find myself most curious to find out. Catsbane was about to twist it open when Shawnee stopped him. He said there's a warning on the side. A rune. Might it not be trapped? Doubtful. It's common for magi to put false warnings on everything. I think it's probably safe to open. Ready? One, two... Sixty-four, said Jace, jingling the coins in the bag after replacing them. He looked around nonplussed. Gold coins, that is. Catsbane laughed to himself <laughs> and opened the tube. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to help out, there are a bunch of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone who has supported the show. I'd like to take a moment to read one of your kind reviews right now. This one was posted on Podchaser by Willow, spelled Will1O. Willow writes, Brilliant. The twists and turns presented by the dice rolls are woven intricately into a riveting story. That fact and no PC is safe means that you can never tell what will happen next. Keeps me coming back for the next episode every time. Thanks very much for that kind review, Willow. I'm so happy that the story has you engaged. I'm in the same boat. I never know what's going to happen next, and the uncertainty of the dice rolls keeps me coming back too. As usual, it is my privilege to work with some excellent voice talent. This episode features four different actors. Kai Allen and Kevin Berenger are back, playing Catsbane and Jace, respectively. Find Kai Allen on SoundCloud, where you can sample his awesome music. Kevin can be reached at kbearcreation.com. There are two new voices on the episode, too. Playing Chartoon, I'm proud to introduce John Meerdick, who hosts the Blue 58 podcast about the Green Bay Packers, and who co-runs the Arcane Discoveries Instagram page with his wife Liz to showcase all kinds of TTRPG creators and makers. And playing his grandson, Atruman, I am equally proud to introduce Truman Cooper. Truman asked that I read the following message. Okay, here goes. Truman Cooper binged season one of Tale of the Manticore in record time for a nine-year-old and wants to thank his dad for making that possible. He's acing the third grade, had a poem published in Highlights Magazine, and can't decide his favorite, Rogue, Druid, or Necromancer. He also wishes John would make a new episode every two days instead of every two weeks. Yeah, let me just uh, check with production about that. Yeah, hang on. Uh, apparently, the, uh, the folks in production tell me that's just a little out of reach. I will have to settle for the current schedule. Anyway, thanks to both John and Truman for being a part of the show. So glad to have you both on board. If listeners want to get in touch with me, I'm at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. And there's always email, taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hello, dear listeners. I'm Coop the GM, host of the Echoes of Eshetan podcast. Echoes of Eshetan is a post-apocalyptic actual play audio drama where the dice rolls tell the story. 
Join me each week for a gripping journey across the deserts of Borka, festering swamps of Franca, and mother spore fields of Poland. These mature tales abandon whimsy and embrace the dark with grit, gore, and a glimmer of hope. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Listener discretion advised. Mm-hmm.